Alright, hello everyone and welcome back to a special edition of the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I'm your host, Eddie. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Todd, but today we have a special guest, Matt Precker, who's going to be discussing the device trial with us. So glad to have you recording with us today, Matt. Hey, thanks, Eddie, and good morning, Todd. Good morning. Glad that you could join us. It'll be a lot of fun and very informative for the listeners. So we appreciate you spending the time, Matt. One quick programming note before we get started. We are recording remotely for the first time today. And ironically, I think actually I have the worst sound acoustics. But that's just to say that if there's any audio quips or issues that isn't common to our podcast, we appreciate your patience with us. We hope to do more of these and with that, refine this process. But anyway. Eddie, that's perfect. You have the worst sound acoustics and you have the worst sound bites. So that's great that those go together. But I have the best voice. So that's okay. Like I said, Matt is the lead author on the device trial, which at the time of release of this podcast should have just been presented at Critical Care Reviews Conference in Belfast right now. I think there's one other article at the conference that we haven't already talked about, which we'll discuss on our normal schedule, but enough of that. Let's get to the topic at hand and the man of the hour. Matt, like I said, it's so great to have this opportunity to record with you. Your CV rivals Todd's and covers ECMO, oxygenation, vaccines, intubation techniques and complications, COVID, and even severe frostbite. Uh, We'll get into some of this and obviously the details of the device trial. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Eddie. I'm happy to. And thanks again for having me on the podcast. I've become a regular listener and I think you guys have the best intro music of any medical podcast. It's very Nashville. You've captured the Nashville sound. Yeah. So I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is my hometown. And I was lucky enough, I went to medical school here in Minnesota. And then I was lucky enough to join the first class of the emergency and internal medicine combined residency program here at Hennepin County Medical Center. And that's a five-year program. And following that training, I got to go out to Seattle, Washington and do a pulmonary critical care fellowship. Coming off of that training, I came back to Minnesota and joined the faculty here at Hennepin, where I've been for about the last 10 years. You know, other things about me, I I think living in Minnesota, you have to adapt to the winters, you got to adapt to the environment. So I'm a big cyclist. I like to get outside. I think if you come over to my house, Eddie, you'll see that I have a regular size two-car garage that has, I think, a total of 16 bicycles in it now. We have four kids, so I can justify some of that. But I think we um, we like to get out after it, uh, summer or winter, and be pretty active here in Minnesota. Even in the winter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fat tire biking scene here is pretty amazing. So if you guys ever come visit, we'll have to have you for a lecture and take you fat biking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Todd, what do you think about that? Well, I think that the fat tire scene is nice in Nashville also, but it happens to be a local brewery, right, that makes a beer. And I think that's probably more the fat tire scene in Nashville than biking. I also think that nobody really wants to see me on a fat tire bike. So. <laughs> So Matt, I already referenced your wide range of clinical and academic interests. Device is a trial of video versus direct laryngoscopy. You are also an influential part of the team for the Bougie and the BEAM trials, which evaluated Bougies in airway management. What got you interested in studying airway management in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I think having trained here at Hennepin, we take a lot of pride in our airway management approach. We do a lot of intubations. You know, Brian Driver and I get to study these procedures, which really occur about 1,500 times a year in our ED. So it's a large volume of airway management. We have a lot of independence over that procedure. And so I kind of caught the bug early as a resident. Um, And then in fellowship, I kind of continued that. And I did some work with the EMS system there, uh, the Medic One system, to study how they do airway management pre-hospital and adults and children. 
And I think what I learned from both of those that we tried to bring out in our trials and with the network and the device trial is just the transparency you need to be a high quality emergency airway manager, um, that you should look at your own outcomes, you should report those, you should tweak things till they get better and try adjuncts, try different approaches till you find something that works for you. Eddie, I mean, I, I didn't do a very good job of teaching you this as, as my mentee, but pick research area that is very, very common in your practice, check, that has relatively limited data on the best way to do it and the nuances of it, check, and is something that covers, you know, multiple disciplines, multiple subspecialties, EM, anesthesia, ICU, check, check, check. And that's why it's such a hot topic and why in high impact journals and people care about the research is because it's something lots of people do. It's commonly done in practice and we're advancing the field by getting new data in it in an area where there previously wasn't very much or very good data. Yeah, no, it's, it's really incredible to me and it's something that's really, my eyes have really been opened over the past several years with some of the work that you guys have been doing. So, you know, it's just airway management, you know, it's just one procedure, it lasts you know, ideally it lasts under 30 seconds. Like, well, how ma- how much research could be done there? But there's just so many steps involved. Uh, and I know that, and we'll get into this with our disclaimers, The but the PCCRG, the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group, has active projects going on and plans for future projects. But Matt, for you, I was wondering, what are some unanswered questions in airway management that are just left out there that you're interested in? Yeah, good question. I think this research network that we participate in, I think has approached the, a lot of pragmatic questions in this procedure, comparative effectiveness, those kind of things. I think where the frontier of this is, needs to focus a bit on our roles as, as teachers of area management. So I'm really interested in things about how a relatively novice intubators gain skills and how the technology we have can help or hinder that. I think it's, we owe it to the patients to be able to develop a system where people can learn emergency airway management in the safest way possible for the patients to develop those skills so we can keep replenishing the, the pool of clinicians in this space after Todd and I retire. We're also interested in kind of an airway bundle. I think that's maybe where this field is going in the sense that we've studied a number of discrete interventions, which are really important as a foundation for what we really know about this nuanced procedure. But it involves a lot of things. It's the physical environment you're in. It's the physiologic state of the patient. But I think the things you can control, you know, can we come up with a bundle where we understand how to best prepare a patient, pre-oxygenate a patient, get them positioned, make sure our team is performing and all the human factors optimally, and then use the tools we have to accomplish a procedure on the first attempt and then move on, continue resuscitating the patient. Eddie, I think the airway area is nice for the PCCRG because you know, we like to study things that are already in practice. And it turns out in medicine that technology gets way ahead of the studying of it. And so new technology comes and we just adopt it because we love new technology and we want to use it. And, you know, we think we're doing better, but we haven't really studied it that well. And I think that's true for device. There are some studies before before the device study, but, you know, video laryngoscopy came out and people like loved it. And, you know, you get to see it on the screen and we kind of adopted it and lots of us started doing it without really saying, okay, is this really better than what we were doing before? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And so I think airway management and the PCCRG are, you know, a marriage made in heaven in that regard. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really interesting. And sometimes uh, I really appreciated what you said, Matt, about like the teaching, the novice intubator airway management, uh, because sometimes I make fun of Todd for looking at the outlines that I sent him, but I know he doesn't. And I didn't send you my outline, but that, that will uh, preview some of the questions I have for you after, after we get to our discussion. I thought you were going to be say you were making fun of me for being a novice innovator. 
Oh, no, I make fun of you for a lot of things, Todd, but being a novice intubator is not one of those. So we talked a little bit about airway management uh, and where we are, but we said, I mentioned that it only takes about 30 seconds to do this procedure. What are some hurdles that you have come across in your multiple experience in trials of studying airway management, this procedure that happens in a short period of time? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I think the adherence to the the interventions that we set out to study, this is a procedure that moves quickly and it can take twists and turns that doesn't turn out how you were expecting. And so getting our clinicians, the operators and the physicians supervising them to really buy into the equipoise and the importance of these questions we're asking, I think is something that each of the sites in the PCCRG has spent a lot of work and thought investing in. And you kind of see that borne out in the device trial, which I'm sure we'll highlight later, but this trial was able to enroll a very large sample of patients in just eight short months at these sites. So again, I think the network's maturing and and the questions we're asking are good ones, but we will be thinking a lot about adherence to treatment protocols and then some of the regulatory issues. Matt, I think the equipoise is fascinating. What I mean by that is, is that I'm sure you've experienced this too. When you start talking about airway stuff to a group of people, an audience, people know the answer, right? They have it set in their mind and they they don't need data. They know the answer. And I, you know, I found it very, very reassuring and satisfying that in the PCCRG, we've had buy-in from lots of different folks, emergency medicine clinicians, ICU clinicians, anesthesia clinicians, and all of them, even though I think some of them, if you gave them truth serum, would tell you they think they know the answer, they've been completely willing to enroll patients and go through this in a scientific method, randomized trial, and actually get the data to, hopefully for them, confirm what they already knew as the answer, but at least give us the data to have a, a scientifically driven answer. And without the PCCRG, I think that would be one of the real challenges of doing airway research. But the PCCRG has done a great job of having people buy into that equipoise. All right. Well, I think we should jump into our trial like we normally do. Like I said, we should say some disclaimers up front. Uh, Matt and Todd are both authors on the device trial. Yours truly is listed as a collaborator in the, in the supplement. I enrolled my fair share of patients in the trial as a proceduralist, so hope to bring that experience to the table if applicable. But all that to say that you need to take everything that we're about to say with a little bit of a grain of salt that our reviews reflect the author's views in a literal sense. But we hope that our involvement can give you a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Is there anything, Todd, that you would like to add about disclaimers or listening to authors presenting their own work? No, I don't think so. I think the listeners should just be cognizant. If they think the innovation times in the trial are too long, it's because you contributed a large number of patients to the trial. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I've single-handedly moved that standard deviation. Yeah. So I apologize. I apologize, Matt and Todd, for my involvement. Device trial is titled... Video versus direct laryngoscopy for tracheal intubation in critically ill adults. It's being published at the same time of this podcast release, June 2023 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Matt, you are the lead author on behalf of the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group, or PCCRG. I've learned doing this podcast that if I delay even one sentence in getting to the acronyms, Todd thinks I'm slipping. So let's talk about them. PCCRG is very functional. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It's a little bit hard to remember. I give that a C plus at best. Device is from direct, D-R, with the emphasis on the D and the E in direct, versus video, and then laryngoscope trial, where you're taking the L, C, and E for laryngoscope to get device. So I'll be honest, uh, 50% of the letters from the acronym coming from mid-word letters is a little bit of a reach, um, but I'm happy to accept the ends justify the means argument here because 
you know, device is pretty easy to remember and descriptive accurate. So, you know, B plus, A minus, depending on my mood. Well, I mean, I you said something about taking the L from laryngoscope to get device. I don't know where there's an L in device, so I'm not, not sure that I now can trust your grading. But like device is, is outstanding. We were studying a device in the device trial. It, that by itself probably gives it at least one plus after the A, if not two pluses after the A. I don't know what to say about PCCRG. We didn't really kind of try and come up with a great acronym there. We came up with a, a nice name for the group, the network, and then you know you ended up with PCCRG as just the first letters of the name for the group. Yeah, I got confused there. I had a lowercase l in the laryngoscope to remind myself that that wasn't part of the acronym and I got confused with an I. Nice there, reminder. So. That worked well. Yeah, I won't do that. I won't do that in the future. I mean, you have like the French groups like the Crikes, Trigger, SEP, and then you have Anzix in Australia and New Zealand. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we need to be looking at a, a new acronym for the PCCRG. So we've, we've talked a little bit about airway management at the top during our intro, but Matt, can you talk to me a little bit more about direct versus video laryngoscopy? So laryngoscopy is getting a view of the larynx, uh, more specifically the vocal cords, so you can pass an endotracheal tube, aka intubate. But why do I care so much about how I do that, which device I'm using here? Yeah, Eddie, that's a great way to start. I think the background of the paper and what we were trying to describe in the lead up to this trial was that, like Todd said, video laryngoscopy uh, is a technology that's come a long way in a short period of time. And we have modified the traditional direct laryngoscope, which is a handle, a blade, and a light source, by adding a camera near that light source in the distal part of the blade. And having a camera at that position allows the intubator to not only look through the mouth if they have a scope that can displace the tongue and the epiglottis, but also to look up or nearby at a video screen, which is giving you real-time images of what the tip of that blade is seeing. So you can get up and close and personal with the larynx in ways you typically couldn't while you're performing direct laryngoscopy. So I think on face value, a lot of academic centers, early adopters kind of said we should go with this, but it's remained a really vigorous debate because of uh, long-held beliefs, because of, I think, anesthesiology's appropriate expertise in doing direct laryngoscopy in the operating room setting uh, and the mechanics of that procedure. And then we you know, followed the trail of the literature and were impressed with the work the French did in the MacMan trial, which we can talk more about, but that was published in 2017 in JAMA and didn't find a difference in first attempt success between clinicians using a direct laryngoscope and those using a video laryngoscope. So I think it was an open question with equipoise that we really wanted to tackle in a large and hopefully somewhat definitive way through the PCCRG. So you mentioned two things I wanted to bring up. One is certainly is MacMan and prior evidence, but you had mentioned uh, anesthesiologists and all their experience using direct laryngoscopes. Uh, one thing I think gets glossed over a little bit in this discussion is that we're talking about airways in the critical care setting. So this is opposed to the ORs with anesthesia. There are far more intubations happening in the operating rooms. And from a purely scientific and experimental standpoint, it's a lot more controlled, allowing you to isolate a single variable. So why not do these trials there? Yeah, I'm going to channel my emergency physician and intensivist training and practice here, Eddie at Hennepin, to say those settings are so vastly different that they could be the earth and the moon, I think, in the sense that in the ED and the ICU, I feel like a lot of the indications for emergency intubations are truly emergent. There are a lot more situations where we're forced to act as intubators, and we need to secure that airway to continue to save the patient's life and continue to resuscitate the patient. So I think there's, there's more urgency. 
And then the environment is different. So like you brought up, there are a lot of contextual environmental factors that differ. We don't have fasted patients that are optimally positioned and we can induce and intubate them at any time. We're presented with a patient often via ambulance that comes right off of the street and has an undifferentiated life-threatening problem. And we're trying to manage that patient's hemodynamics and their gas exchange, and we're treating and diagnosing in parallel. So it's challenging. And I think there are challenges to both environments. And when I was referring to the operating room, I was especially just highlighting the technical expertise in being an expert direct laryngoscopist that I think you get with intubating hundreds, if not thousands of patients. So that's a very useful skill. And we try to employ the expertise of those folks in some of the training we do in the ICU. But these are are procedures we need to complete and do it safely and efficiently. I think, Eddie, the data suggests that severe complications occur in about one out of 100 innovations in the operating room and severe complications occur in about one out of three innovations in the emergency, emergent innovations in the emergency department or the ICU. And honestly, and maybe Matt would disagree, but honestly, I think that if we had a 1% complication rate and those complications are either hypoxemia in general, hypoxemia and or hypotension, severe hypotension. And I think from my standpoint, if we had a 1% complication rate in doing this in our patients, we probably wouldn't be studying it because the chance for improvement there is, you know, really, really, really small, but it's occurring in a third of our patients. And so the chance for, you know, maybe we can actually get better at this and do this in a way that's better for our patients is a potential big gain and, you know, a huge opportunity there for us to improve the care of our patients. Uh, We've talked a little bit about prior evidence. And I don't want to spend too much time like diving into that literature per se, but you had mentioned that MacMan was a prior trial in the same space, showed no difference published in JAMA. How did that trial, if at all, impact how you guys were setting up the device trial? Yeah, Eddie, I'd say I highlight that trial because it came on the heels of many single center trials in in settings uh, other than the operating room. So there've been pre-hospital trials, ED trials, trials in the ICU that had generalizability issues, frankly, because they were single center, relatively limited numbers of patients, and maybe used techniques or equipment that weren't used in other places, right? So very limited uh, literature. And I give a lot of credit to the French group that designed and conducted a multi-center trial in their ICUs that was the MacMan trial. And as reading that and studying that trial and thinking about it, you know, they studied the McGrath Macintosh video laryngoscope versus a direct laryngoscope. The intubators, like in our network, are primarily trainees. And I think the trial also dug a little deeper into this topic by trying to stratify those operators into expert or non-expert and also getting pretty robust data about the patients as far as airway difficulty. And of course, the trial was powered to a difference in a successful innovation on the first attempt which is also, I think, probably a very reasonable outcome. And so their finding of no difference maybe was a bit of a wet blanket in this field in the sense that people had equipoise and others continued to do what they've always been doing and continue to have similar success where we were intubating the trachea in the first attempt in 70, 75, 80% of patients in a lot of settings, which to Todd's point, offers a lot of room for improvement. And so the COVID pandemic happened and thought leaders and professional societies issued guidelines saying, hey, we should keep our face a little farther away from a patient who may or is confirmed to have COVID. Why don't we rely more on indirect laryngoscopy with a video laryngoscope? Um, And so that I think it was used a lot more if you hadn't adopted it already. And so trainees kind of maybe started to grow up in a culture where video laryngoscope was better accepted. And so after COVID, when we started the device trial, I think all those contextual factors played a role uh, in the launch of our trial. 
Eddie, I think it was one of the great things about MacMan is that they got data from their operators on their failed first pass innovations when they couldn't get it on the first pass. And I loved these data that said, if you missed with a direct laryngoscope, it was because you didn't get a very good view. And if you missed with a video laryngoscope, it was because you got a view, but you had a hard time passing the tube into the cords, which relates to, to my experience in using both of these in practice. But I think was was a really interesting finding because we had tons of data with the video laryngoscope that it definitely gave you a better view, a better grade of Cormac Lehane grade of view. And I think MacMan said, yeah, you know, that's true in the ICU world, too. But just because you get a better view doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be more successful. It resulted in me writing an opinion piece on a blog that was titled, Is it better to have seen and failed or never to have seen at all? And it was about MacMan and it was about VL versus DL because in VL you see and you couldn't put the tube in and in DL you couldn't see so you couldn't put the tube in. And it just made the question even that much more interesting. So I think let's talk about the trial at hand. Let's talk about device. Device ended up enrolling 1,420 adult critically ill patients requiring tracheal intubation from March 2022 to November 2022, which Matt, you already mentioned, is blazing fast, and we'll get into that. The patients were enrolled one-to-one to receive video or direct laryngoscopy at 17 sites, which included seven EDs and 10 ICUs. It was approved with a waiver of informed consent by the Vanderbilt University Medical Center and the United States Department of Defense. Patients were excluded if they were known to be pregnant prisoners or the proceduralist deemed the procedure too emergent to undergo randomization or if the proceduralist thought that either video or direct laryngoscopy was necessary. Uh, Is there any comments that you have on that inclusion or exclusion criteria or how the trial is proceeded? Let me chime in, Eddie, really quickly and just kind of state that it was fascinating to me that the Department of Defense helped fund this study. And the fascinating part wasn't that they helped fund this study, but that part of their rationale was they actually teach their medics in the military to just crike patients. They think that laryngoscopy is actually difficult, and it might be difficult in the field, I don't know, but they think it's difficult enough that you shouldn't even mess around with it and you just crike the patients. And so with this sort of investment in this study, they're willing to evaluate, maybe they need to change the way they teach their medics and how they're handling these these critically injured patients in combat and in the field. And, you know, for me, I love that part of it, right? That's why we all go into research is to try and change practices and change the way we care for patients and, and make the medical care given to patients better. And I think this provides a good opportunity. And I love the fact that the Department of Defense was open to getting information on this to reevaluate what their practice currently is. I think too, Eddie, I'd add that I think the device trial really does pragmatic with a capital P, you know, in that we tried to design the trial where it's enrolls a very representative sample of the patients we decide to intubate in the ED and the ICU. And we'll see that, I think, when we get to the results. But I think the Department of Defense was especially interested in our ED trauma patients as a group that would apply to their interests. And I think the trial had subpopulations, a little bit of everything, things we see in both settings. And you didn't say this, Eddie, but the other big P part of pragmatic was is that the video used, the video laryngoscope used was not limited to one maker, one style. Um, It was dealer's choice that you got to choose what video uh, laryngoscope that you used in the patients. And so, you know, I think that makes the results more generalizable to the concept of indirect versus direct laryngoscopy in these patients, as opposed to specific brand of video laryngoscope versus direct laryngoscopy. Yeah. If there was a difference between any of those different brands, it would have biased you towards the null there, right? 
Yeah. So I'm going to skip around a little bit. Usually I talk about the primary outcome here, but I, I just had, do you guys have any comments on how quickly patients were enrolled or the stopping criteria? So the original power calculation to detect a 5% difference in the primary outcome, which we'll talk about in a second, determined that you needed about 1,900 patients to be enrolled. And the DSMB or Data and Safety Monitoring Board reviewed the data from the first thousand and determined that the stopping criteria for efficacy was already met in those first thousand patients. And that's what stopped the trial early at 1,400. We anticipated that enrollment would be pretty brisk in this trial, and we under-anticipated how brisk it would be, and we kind of out-enrolled what we even thought we might enroll in this trial, which, you know, is pretty unusual for randomized trials in critical care and actually a lot of fun. And then the second part of that is, is that it had clear stopping criteria for the DSMB, and we do this in lots of our trials, and the data just don't hit those stopping criteria. And so you assume that the DSMB is going to say, everything looks great, keep going. So when the DSMB said, you know, hey, we think you have a pretty definitive answer here, you should stop. You know, we were both A, excited, and B, kind of like, whoa, you know, that was that was quick. That trial is over now. We're, we're done with that trial. You need to start thinking about plans for the, for the next part of this. Yeah, I think we internally handled that pretty well. It went as well as it could have gone and that we had our analytic plan already uh, submitted to a journal and is published before the trial's done. So I was happy with that. I think in the trial leadership, we didn't know what we would see at that interim analysis. I was quite frankly surprised that the trial stopped. I came into the trial with my own biases as, as performing the procedure and practicing the kind of medicine you guys do as well. But I thought that the conservative, you know, P less than 0.001 stopping criterion for efficacy being met after a thousand patients was, was pretty remarkable. Oh man, it's definitely remarkable. So the stopping criteria I've mentioned is for the primary outcome and the primary outcome was successful intubation on the first attempt. This is outlined pretty specifically in the main script. It's the placement of the endotracheal tube into the trachea using a single insertion of the laryngoscope blade, a single insertion of the endotracheal tube into the mouth, and if you plan on using an adjunct like a bougie, a single insertion of the bougie into the mouth as well. So that's a lot of single, kind of like my college dating life. This basically boils down to the procedure needed to proceed smoothly. You guys have used this outcome before, defined in a similar manner. Why did we have to be so specific on defining what first pass success is? Well, Eddie, I think that the way we as a network defined first pass success is really requiring perfection from the operator uh, in that they had to do, like you said, one laryngoscope insertion and then one passage of the tube or a device in the tube. And so by requiring both halves of the procedure, both the laryngoscopy to be successful with one insertion and the intubation of the trachea to be successful with one pass, I think that's probably the most robust and highest quality definition of the procedure. And making that requirement also forced us to record each of those kind of sub-primary outcomes and uh, let us be pretty thoughtful in how we can see when the trial wrapped up the effect of both of these devices on first attempt success, right? Back to Todd's point around, uh, is it important if you see the larynx, if you can't intubate it, right? We really wanted to be able to tease that out afterwards by capturing data on both halves of the procedure. We knew that making this more rigorous definition would result in the absolute percentage of patients intubated on the first attempt with our new definition, probably lower than the traditional definition of one laryngoscope insertion. But going forward, I'd really like to see it more widely adopted in airway management research. Eddie, I also think it was really important for this trial to prevent bias. Here's why I say that. If you use video laryngoscope and you put the video laryngoscope in and you see the cords, and then you try and put the endotracheal tube in and you bang the posterior pharynx or you bang the arytenoids, right? Oftentimes you will pull the endotracheal tube out 
reshape it, leave the lavidial laryngoscope in, and you know, try again. If first pass success was only how many times did you put the blade in, you would get credit for a first pass success on the video group. But we almost never do that in direct. In direct, we even if we see it, if we don't get it, we pull the direct out and we start over and we go through it again. That difference in practice between the two groups could have biased us to finding an artificial improvement in first pass success in the video group, even though the practice was only that, you know, you just didn't take the video out, even though you were doing, you know, you missed and you were redoing the tube and all of that. And so I think being that strict with it made it so that we had sort of an apples to apples comparison and both arms were on the same grounds for evaluating whether or not you had a successful first pass innovation. Can we talk a little bit more about your college dating life? Actually, we can, we can talk about it. There's nothing to say. Yeah, I was so. just going to say, actually, we shouldn't because I don't need any more rejection in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get rejected if you don't try, Todd. So table one, baseline characteristics. Uh, it was pretty even between the groups here. The median age was 55. There's about 35% female. The BMI was 26. About 45% of the patients were intubated for altered mental status, about 30% with acute respiratory failure, 5% with cardiac arrest. Before randomization, the procedurists were asked about the anticipated difficulty of intubation, and 30% of the airways were anticipated to be easy, 45% were anticipated to be moderate difficulty, and 9% were anticipated to be hard, which again, it was pretty similar between the groups there. Was there any guidance provided to the procedurists about anticipation of difficulty of the airway? No, Eddie, we didn't specify that. This is a global subjective clinical assessment that we asked the uh, operators to make before the randomization envelope was opened. We wanted their unbiased assessment of their overall gestalt about how difficult this airway would be. And looking back at previous PCC or JATE data, we've found that that performs just as well as more structured exams that take much longer to do, including things like the Makoka score and others. So we felt this was a good pre-randomization way to get this really, I think, important baseline characteristic about anticipated difficulty before you start the procedure. Eddie, you know, there's a JAMA manuscript that shows that the best predictor of if it's going to be a difficult airway is whether you can put your lower teeth above your upper vermilion of your upper lip. It turns out that's really hard to ask our critically ill patients to do most of the time, so we aren't able to use that. And this is at least as good as the other scores that are out there. The, the other thing I find fascinating about all of this is, is that while we ask them to do this, at least if you go through instruction manual types type things on innovation, you're supposed to do this in every single innovation is kind of get in your mind. Do you think, what do you think the difficulty of this airway is going to be? And so we just kind of made them report it. Hopefully they were doing this already uh, as part of their prep work for the innovation. Yeah. There's multiple different methods of assessing how difficult an airway is going to be. And effectively what we're saying here is however you do it, what do you think it's going to be? So not prescribing just one specific method of the lower teeth or the mom potty score, or I've, I've heard three fingers and two fingers for some other anatomic predicted difficulties. And the other thing that brings up, Eddie, that I'd add is we included the consort diagram for the device trial in the supplement. So readers are going to have to go there to find it. But what it highlighted is that one key to the trial, I think, to make it valid and generalizable is that we couldn't cherry pick just easy airways to test this question on, or I think we might have seen a, a no result. And so uh, the device trial screened over 1,900 patients, and we we're able to enroll almost three quarters of them, 73%. So few patients relatively were excluded. And it's reassuring to me to see that these operators rated the airway as anticipated difficult in about 10% 
of cases. And so that tells me that we're not excluding patients because there are pre-existing biases into which scope is better and, and the trial population is not just one of easy airways. Yeah, that makes sense. We've, we've mentioned a, a several times here, the operator, the proceduralist, and so similar to the, some of the central line trials we've talked about, Todd, uh, the proceduralist matters here. And table two contains, well, part of it contains the characteristics of the intubator. So we've alluded to some of this before. 70% of the providers were emergency medicine trained, 25% critical care medicine trained. Not that they're one-to-one, but similarly, about 70% of the procedures were residents and 25% of were fellows, so about 95% total were trainees. The median number of prior intubations was 50, and most providers had at least 25% of their prior intubations with a video laryngoscope. Table two also includes some details on the intubation procedure. Uh, only one thing that I, I wanted to point out here, I'll let you guys point out other things, just a comment on the separation between groups being, I mean, really almost immaculate. 100% of the airways randomized video laryngoscopy use video on the first pass, and 99% of those randomized to direct use direct. So a really clean trial there. Any other comments on either the proceduralists or the characteristics of the procedure? Yeah, the only thing I'd say is people I think are going to read this and say, well, this was done at mostly academic medical centers. 95% of the of the people doing procedures were in training. But what I think you should take from this is, is that while that's true, I think we have a pretty diverse range of training. You know, you get to the end of your fellowship or the end of your finishing emergency medicine residency, and it turns out you've done a reasonable number of innovations and that you actually have, you know, some experience. And the other side of that is, is that I think we also have a pretty wide range of experience with video laryngoscopy and direct laryngoscopy, because what we wanted to make sure we didn't have was an operator group that was used to doing X and not doing Y, whether that's video versus direct or vice versa, where you might be able to claim that the results were just because, well, they'd never done video before or direct before, and therefore, you know, it wasn't a fair comparison. And I think the data that we got showed that you know, we had a pretty fair comparison between the two with regard to operator experience in both overall innovations and innovations with each device. Yeah, I agree with that, Eddie. And I'd add that we had good distribution enrollments at all 17 sites in the trial. So that adds to generalizability and we counted them up and there were 387 unique operators that contributed at least one procedure to the study. And the median number of intubations per operator was two with an interquartile range of one to four. So I know your enrollment was prodigious, but most people contributed just a handful of intubations to the trial. So we sampled a wide experience and and uh, diversity of training. So results time, we've referenced it before when we talked about how it stopped early, but this is a positive trial. 85.1% of the airways performed with a video laryngoscope achieved first pass success compared to 70.8% with a direct laryngoscope. That gives a difference of 14.3% and a p-value of less than 0.001. And, you know, in figure two, which is a subgroups, it basically held true for every single subgroup. Only those with those who had more than 100 prior intubations and those who had less than 25% of their prior intubations being a video laryngoscope had odds ratios crossing one but every point estimate was favoring the video scopes. There was no difference in any safe safety outcomes of esophageal intubation, teeth injury, or aspiration. And, you know, I mean, honestly, all of them were really uncommon, one-percent-ish uh, or less. There was no difference also in clinical outcomes like ICU-free days, ventilator-free days, 
one hour mortality, 28 day mortality. Matt, I'll let you go first here. What do you want readers to know and take away about the outcomes of the trial? My answer, I guess, would be prefaced by saying I think I'm very happy to say that I think the trial was really well done. We had excellent separation between the groups. We were able to achieve a, essentially an explanatory trial-like rigor in the patients getting the intervention they were assigned to in a pragmatic setting. So this is all really good. I think the way we conducted the trial around having an independent observer for the procedure to actually record the primary outcome also limits things like recall bias or reporting bias. And then you know, the enrolled patients at a wide variety of settings, including 70% of patients coming from the ED. So all that being said, I think this is a remarkable effect and 14.3 percentage points difference, you know, equates to a number needed to treat to prevent one first pass failure of seven. And so in your ICU, if you have those patients, that's a pretty low number to need to treat. And I think with strong evidence to people in the ED and in critical care world that if you don't have it already, looking at adopting and training in videolaryngoscopy is an important uh, addition to your practice. Yeah, Eddie, I think one of the things that we might have been a little bit surprised about, in addition to it stopping at the first interim, but was that we didn't see really a difference in the clinical outcomes of duration of ICU stay, duration of mechanical ventilation mortality. And we're trying to better understand that. You know, it could be that maybe there's just not that direct link between, you know, the procedure, especially the procedure where the majority of them are done without, you know, having to retry a second time. And the majority, even though 33% have a serious complication, that means two thirds of them don't have a serious complication. And so, you know, maybe that direct link isn't as tight as we might have thought that it was. The other thing that I would say is, is that in looking at that, there's, you know, it makes you think about the direct link. And there's some things like if you think about hypotension during an intubation, does it matter if I use a video or a direct? You know, probably not. Other than if you can't get a tube in, and you go on for a long period of time, you're more likely to see any complication. But outside of that, you know, you say, well, depending on whether I put a video in or a direct laryngoscope in, I'm not sure that that will affect blood pressure. And that may also be a reason that we didn't see that. Todd, I'll interrupt you here, but even agnostic to the number of attempts that the time was different between video and direct laryngoscopy, right? Yeah, it is. But what's the difference? Yeah, we we saw that the duration of intubation timed as the start of laryngoscopy to successfully placing the tube was 38 seconds in the video group and 46 seconds in the direct group. So a difference of eight seconds. And that had a conference interval that, that didn't span zero. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think this is one of those situations. We had lots of discussion about this in the authorship group. It's if you did a p-value on it, and we didn't do p-values on secondary outcomes, but if you did a p-value, your p-value would have suggested this was statistically significant. Then the question becomes, is eight seconds in, in a procedure clinically significant? And I think you could, you know, debate that and say whether whether that's... Uh, is eight seconds in a procedure that lasts 30 seconds, you know, significant? I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate. You know that. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's right. But I think also that eight... Matt may know these data better than I do. I think a lot of that eight seconds comes from the fact that if you have a 14% increase in having to try a second time, those are obviously longer. And so that will obviously draw out your central tendency measures uh, in that group. So if you looked at time to first successful innovation, I'm not sure they were that much different. And I'm not sure I would expect them to be that much different, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's true, Todd. And it kind of makes me reflect a bit on this idea about both parts of the procedure had to be perfect to achieve the primary outcome here. And unlike MacMan or previous trials, we did find that, un, un, um, not surprisingly, 
video laryngoscopy did uh, result in a better view of the glottis. That's been shown before, but unlike prior trials, it also resulted in in a higher rate of passage of the ET tube into the trachea in the first attempt. So that also is another way to say what you just said, which is that it partially drove that difference in time. So what is the difference between this and older evidence, including MacMan? You We had referenced a little bit before temporality. And when I say temporality, I mean around the COVID pandemic, where as you said, Matt, a lot of uh, institutions had moved away from getting really close to the mouth of a person who may or has been had confirmed COVID and use a little bit more video. Could that have played a role here? Yeah, I think so, Eddie. I think the operators in this trial were more experienced with the video laryngoscope of their choice than operators in previous VL versus DL trials. We know that that over half of the operators in this trial had, looking at their previous intubation experience, had intubated more often with a video laryngoscope than they had with a direct laryngoscope. So that's important. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about subgroups again, because I thought it was very interesting what we observed around operator experience and that interaction with first attempt success by device. I don't know if you want to go there now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to bring it up later, but yeah, let's let's go ahead and go for it. Yeah, I think the take home here is that, like you mentioned, the, the subgroups that we specified uh, a priori all favor video laryngoscopy here. And that includes when we categorized operator experience by number of previous intubations, and it also includes breaking it down by the proportion of prior intubations that were done with a video laryngoscope. So even though, even if you're someone that less than 25% of your previous intubations were done with a video laryngoscope, if you're a DL primary kind of person, video laryngoscope, the point estimate still favored video laryngoscopy in those those operators. And so you're right that the operator has a huge, I think, bearing on a procedural trial-like device. That signal was loud and clear, I think, that in these group of operators at these 17 sites, regardless of experience, uh, VL was superior. I should say the caveat, of course, among the spectrum of experience we observed in this trial, which almost all operators had intubated less than 250 times, right? Yeah, I mean, figure S4 is fascinating to me and that what it shows is, is that experience matters from a, are you successfully going to intubate this patient? And the experience that matters differs by video and direct laryngoscopy based off of how many prior intubations you've done. This is not intubations with a specific device. This is intubations in general. And so for video, you kind of plateau and, you know, don't have a slope on your getting better and your first pass success rates after about 50 intubations, total intubations, not just with video. But with direct laryngoscopy, the experience level is 200 intubations total. And even at 200 intubations total, it still kind of has an upward slope that you're still kind of improving even all that way out. Suggesting to me, I think that people learn better on using video laryngoscopy and they get better at it and they end up becoming better and more proficient at doing the intubation sooner in their training when they're using video laryngoscopy as opposed to direct. So I want to I want to get back to this training and how to train a person to manage critical airways, but I have two questions that lead into that. One, the first one is maybe a little bit of a leading question. Let's say that you totally bought into the results of the trial is direct laryngoscopy dead. Did you start that question by saying let's say you buy into the results of the trial? You're like talking to people that like, you know, designed and conducted and wrote the trial. And then you're like, uh, you know, just by chance, if you believe your results, merely by chance. (laughs) No, I I think it's a good question. And it's something that uh, the PCCRG has had some discussion about. And we don't we don't have the answer right now, which is 
what does this mean with regards to training? Does this mean that we should stop training people in direct laryngoscopy? Does it mean that, you know, we should only train people in video laryngoscopy for the actual procedure and we should do SIM for direct or, you know, something that's not actually involving a, an actual patient that might have a downside to it? I, I think my answer to that, and, and Matt's smarter than, well, I know he's smarter than me and I know he's also smarter than you, Eddie. So he's smarter than both of us. Uh, so maybe he, he knows the answer to this. But from my standpoint, I don't know what the answer to this is. I think we worry that there are certain cases where video may not be the right choice or the best choice. You know, for me, those are cases where there's lots of fluid and posterior pharyngeal contents that might gum up the camera so you can't see with the video uh, laryngoscope. Having said that, many of the newer video laryngoscopes, you can just DL with them. So, you know, if you can't see on the camera, you just convert it into the the DL. But Todd, that's that's for you. You can just DL, but for these people, new trainees, if they may not be getting the same type of training in DL, maybe they're not able to, even though you have that ability to do with the Yeah, device. that's right. That's that's the concern is, is that you'll run into one of these situations. Some, we won't have trained somebody in DL. They won't know how to do it. And we'll end up disadvantaging the patient because the, the operator wasn't adequately trained by us people who are in the business of training people to do this. I think there are some other sides of this debate, though. And that is those people in our trial should have been excluded because, you know, if you can't adequately use VL, you shouldn't be randomized to a trial of VL versus DL. And they just aren't that common. We didn't exclude that many people. And so while, you know, maybe it is something that happens once in a bit, it's not something that's going to occur every single day in your ICU practice that you're going to run into an airway that you can't do a video in. And I think that's important when we think about training. You know, how do we train for putting in an LMA? How do we train for a failed airway? How do we train for these things that are not never events, but fortunately they're really, really rare. And, you know, they're not something that we can train our trainees in regular clinical practice of just caring for patients because they're just not going to see it enough to get training in it. So we come up with other ways. We do it in a sim center. We do it, you know, in a classroom. We do it, you know, you know in an animal model or something like that. And that may be what we're going to end up doing with DL. I don't know. We don't, I don't think we have an answer yet, but. I think this is really hard, Todd and Matt, you guys might have a little bit of different experience, but for some of the prior trials, which, uh, you know, I'm going to oversimplify and gloss over, but like for bougie, where there's no difference where you're talking about bougie versus stylet, well, you can just tell the trainee, well, you need to be confident with a bougie, even if your practice is stylet. So let's throw in some first pass bougie. It's not going to make a difference in your first pass success, but this trial is positive. There is a difference. And so the how you work this in is is a big question now. Well, Eddie, my ears perked up when I heard bougie, so you got me back here. Um, but this is an area where I very rarely get to uh, argue with Todd, but I, I just want to tell him you might be wrong in this instance, and that this is a common dogma that uh, contaminated or soiled airways with blood or body fluids, you can't do video laryngoscopy. And that not only hasn't been my experience in the ED or IC where I work, but it also wasn't borne out in the trial. And I think that's... A, subgroup, but it's a key take-home message. We identified 250 approximately patients who the operator indicated that blood or body fluids obscuring the view of the cords was a difficult, uh, they encountered difficulty because of that. Maybe not the only difficulty, but at least one of them. And analyzing just that subgroup in a sensitivity analysis, we found that the first attempt success rate in the video laryngoscope group was 75% versus approximately 60% in the direct laryngoscope. So the same effect size in the same direction in patients with soiled airways. So I think as emergency airway managers, we got to set aside the thought that if you have a soupy or bloody airway, you got to put away the video laryngoscope. I don't think that's true. 
I'm going to continue to teach direct laryngoscopy to my trainees in the right setting. If I predict uh, anatomic non-difficulty and when you're using a vitilaryngoscope and something fails with the cord or the battery and all of a sudden you don't have a light or a screen, I think you better be able to do direct laryngoscopy. So it has its role and uh, we'll continue to teach it. But both Brian Driver and I have talked about a lot about this, but I, th- I think I really want to understand more how should a trainee, which scope should they reach for in their first 15 or 20 or 50 innovations, right? Should we give them only a video scope so they understand the anatomy, they can enjoy first attempt success and get good at both laryngoscopy and tube passage before graduating to to uh, trying to achieve proficiency or mastery with the direct laryngoscope? I think that's an open question. But yeah, that's a, that's a huge question, right? So Todd had mentioned, well, the, the curves start to plateau at about 50. So are you saying that their first 50 needs to be video? It's the, what if something happens in those first 50? What if they don't have a video scope available to them? You have to have taught them direct. It's a necessary skill as we're talking about. It's one of the, the questions that, let me put it this way, though uh, an important question was answered with this trial, important question also was raised because of the results of this trial. And we certainly didn't spend much time, Eddie and Todd, capturing uh, how was the airway managed in cases of first attempt failure. That's a very important question in the practice we do. So I don't want to give our colleagues the sense that a failed first laryngoscopy attempt should result in continued laryngoscopy over and over again, right? I think one way to to be an expert airway manager is to quickly move on to plan B and to oxygenate and ventilate the patient through a supraglottic airway or through big mask ventilation while you regroup and, and assess what you're going to do next. You know, I teach an airway course, a national airway course. And when learners come, they often tell me that their institution does not have a video laryngoscope. And I think that's going to be hard to rationalize going forward now. It, you know, first of all, there are models out there that aren't that expensive. And I think everybody should at least have access to some video laryngoscope based off of the results of this trial and the fact that that I think these data are pretty convincing that it facilitates being successful on your first attempt more than, than a direct laryngoscope. And just since we're in the weeds, guys, I would just point out, too, that we captured data on technical failures of these devices, of the laryngoscopes, and those were actually numerically greater in the direct laryngoscope group, where we had four technical failures out of 712 versus just two in the 705 patients who received a video laryngoscope. So I think these are robust equipment that you can use in your EDs and ICUs without a large concern that that's going to happen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I uh, I have an experience. I'm the old guy in the group, right? So I have an experience. It used to be the direct laryngoscopes had an actual light bulb that you screwed in on the end of them. And I have an actual experience where the light bulb fell off and ended up in the patient's trachea. It was not a successful first innovation because everything went black on me uh, as the light bulb fell off and we had to actually put another light bulb on. So the while we talk about equipment failures in VL, uh, DL is certainly not... Um, immune from equipment failures. They can happen in DL too. Todd, I thought you were going to reference your training where you got to wear the circular mirror on your forehead and direct the sunlight into the uh, patient's mouth. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was that was early on in the training. That's correct. Uh, I just have one more question. It's a similar question that I have in general. So we talked about trainees, but what about you, Todd and Matt? Uh, what are you guys going to do moving forward? Are you guys going to be hundred percent video if given the chance. What I've realized with this is, is that there's lots of things in medicine that are team sports and video laryngoscopy kind of makes innovation a team sport. And what I mean by that is, is that not only does the operator get to look at the screen, but everybody else in the room gets to look at the screen too. And there may be some benefit to that. There's definitely benefit in training. 
Like if I get to look at the screen, I can try and teach you and that sort of stuff. But there may be actual benefit in performing the procedure by having a team around. And Eddie, I think you've heard me say many times that one of the frustrations I always had with the video was when you get a grade one view and then you're just banging the posterior pharynx with the endotracheal tube and everybody in the room is like, hey, Rice, how hard is it to put the tube through the cords, right? But that aside, I actually think there may be some benefit to everybody being able to see and kind of weigh in and comment and say, you know, hey, you know, yes, I know I know it's in because I saw it go through the cords or, you know, hey, you need to do this to get it through the cords or whatever. And um, I think video video makes it so that laryngoscopy might be a team sport. Yeah, I agree, Ted. I'll take it a step further and say that here at Hennepin, we have been using a video laryngoscope for the first attempt at intubation almost exclusively for many years. And this group of trainees who participated in the device trial probably did more direct laryngoscopy than any of our trainees in quite some time. Uh, They got very good at it. But I think, number one, the equipment's gotten to the point now where you don't need to be without a video laryngoscope. There are systems that come on wheeled towers that you can bring to the bedside. We in the ED faculty at Hennepin respond to inpatient codes and need to perform airway management outside of the ED uh, on the floors or wherever those happen. And we carry a video laryngoscope Macintosh style blade with a small uh, portable pocket monitor screen. And that system works really well for us. So I don't, I don't think the, the setting really should influence that. And I'd point out, Eddie, as we wrap up, that if you want to look at the traditional definition of first attempt success, similar to what they did in MacMan, the difference in the device trial was 90% in the VL group first attempt success versus 77 in the DL group. So I think the reason for the positive trial is not because a direct laryngoscope was uh, used poorly or or didn't have those skills to use it. Nearly 80% first attempt success in DL is is very in line with previous trials. So I think the signal's there. You have the evidence now. I hope we'll see guidelines changing to more strongly recommend video laryngoscope use on the first attempt. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's all we have for this special bonus episode of the ICU Ed and Toddcast. If you have any questions for Matt or Todd or anything that you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at icuedandtodcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on the social at ICUCast at Ed Chan, that's E-D-Q-I-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd, again, for your insights. Thank you, Matt, and the entire PCZRG for all their hard work, and congratulations on the completion of a trial for us to interpret. Thank you, Mike Gannon, for the intro and outro music. Thank you to everyone listening. Thank you for your patience as we are learning a new platform. Yeah, Matt, thank you very much for taking time out of your your busy schedule to be with us and you know our listeners are going to love this and can't thank you enough absolutely guys i enjoyed it and this is a great podcast look forward to continue listening here from minnesota let's go save some lives eddie eddie are you still there he looks frozen Yeah, he's frozen. We put him to sleep. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any length material is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable, but we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.